Good morning. How's everyone? We're in a wonderful series called Unstoppable. And what we're doing, we're going through the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 12, if you could. I'd appreciate that. Let me give you a little recap what this really series is about. The book of Acts, as I said, we're going through it. It has 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is divided into three sections. Today, we're at the end of section 2. The book is outlined in Acts chapter 1-8. If you want to see the outline of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1-8, where Jesus said, you, you the church will be my witnesses. He said, first to Jerusalem, which is Acts chapters 1 through 7. And then he says to uh, Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 through 12. And that's where we are today. And then he's going to say, uh, after that, he says, when we come back to our series, he's going to say, you're to be witnesses to the end of this earth. Uh, chapters 13 through 28 is is what we're going to be looking at at the last part of this series. And we're only about, we're almost, I think we're about halfway in this series, so we got a long way to go in the book of Acts. But Peter is the central focus of the chapter we have today. After today's chapter, Peter kind of fades from the scene, and the apostle Paul becomes the central character of the book of Acts, the rest of the book of Acts. But in, the, in Acts chapter 12, it's really good to understand this, that the church now is about 14 years old. By this time, it's 14 years old. So it's been 14 years when the church started in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came. It has been 14 years since Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. He was buried and rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. It's been 14 years since that's happened. If you could put yourself somewhere in that time frame, in your own walk with Christ today, as your journey, as your walk with him, that 14 years, you see if you can maybe compare it to these people. These believers have been there 14 years on their journey with Christ. And kind of see, man, it's my faith growing, if my faith and where I am. So you can kind of understand where you are. Today, what we're going to see, the things in the church, what are happening in the church, that are trying to limit the church and what it's trying to do. And we're going to see a guy get killed. We're going to see some people uh, get in prison. We're going to see a lack of faith in prayer. We're going to see leadership changing some. We're going to see the political influence that will have a negative, be negative toward the church. Yet while all this is going on, while everything is happening, when limits come in, we see that God is unstoppable. He remains unstoppable. God says, I cannot be limited. I cannot be stopped at what I'm trying to do. And that is true in your life and my life as well. That maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, boy, there seems like there's limits in my life. There seems like there's things holding me back. What you need to understand, there's a God who is unlimited, all that he is and all that he does. And that he wants to help us keep moving. And he wants to help us as a church that we might keep moving forward for him. Amen? And our God is an unstoppable God. And he wants his people to be unstoppable people. And hopefully you believe that. God is an unstoppable God, and he wants you to be unstoppable people for him, for his glory. And we should say amen for that, right? Amen. He wants us to be that way, not just to be static and going through life, but be unstoppable people. So for Acts chapter 12, let's read the first verse. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Now, if you know the Christmas story, you know there's a Herod in the Christmas story, right? You guys say, boy, this guy's lived a long time. He's reigned for a really long time. This is a different Herod. There was a ruling family named Herod, and the one who was there at the Bethlehem at the birth of Jesus that killed the children, that was Herod the Great. This, is Herod, this Herod is his grandson, Herod Agrippa, and Herod Agrippa arrested some Christians, and he put them in prison. So verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. The James mentioned here is one of the 12 of the apostles. And you might remember James is James and John, the sons of Zebedee. 
but they had a nickname. Remember what the nickname was? Sons of Thunder, right? Sons of Thunder. These guys really had a passion for Christ. They really had a heart for Jesus to serve him, to live for him. And some people believe because they were called the Sons of Thunder, they might have had an anger issue. They had, had some anger sometimes. They really got upset. But James became a leader of the early church, and he is the first of the 12 of the apostles to be martyred. But the only one of the 12 whose story of being killed is recorded in Scripture. The only one that we have. It is believed that James and John were the youngest of the apostles. James is the first of the 12 to be killed. Church history tells us that John, his brother, was the last. So James has been killed. And think of the blow it was to the early church, how it affected the body of Christ there. But it reminds us, though, that nobody is indis indispensable, right? Nobody's indis indispensable. I'll try to say that again. James is killed, but the church goes on. James there is martyred. I mean, he, he's there. They miss him. They mourn him. But they continue to go on. God is bigger than one man. Always remember that. God is bigger than one person. So the church goes on, even though James has been killed by the sword of Herod. But look at the politician of Herod in the very next verse. Listen to what it says. When he saw that this pleased the Jews of killing James, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Here it is thinking, it was so good. Everybody loved what he did to James. Find me another apostle. Find me another one. So they seized Peter. They put him in prison with the intent to kill him. They were going to kill him too. So this all happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is a big week, a long feast in Jerusalem, where thousands would come from all parts of Israel to be a part of this feast. Verse 4. After arresting him, he put him in prison handing him over to be guarded by four squads or four soldiers each. He had six so, 16 soldiers watch over him. There were four squads, there were four in each squad. And so uh, this was maximum security prison, what he was in. Some people believe that these four squads served in shifts. Some, some believe it's three-hour shifts. Some say six-hour shifts. But he had two soldiers. He was chained to two soldiers, one on the other side, and two was at the entrance that guarded Peter at that time. Maximum security. There's no way to get out, right? No way. You have four, soldiers, four, four guards upon you. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So this was the, after the week of unleavened bread and Passover was done. He was going to bring him out for trial and was going to kill him. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The word earnestly is a medical term, means to strain or to stretch a muscle, to hurt yourself. And, and it's like maybe you've lifted something that's beyond your capability, and when you tried to lift it up, you hurt yourself. Maybe you strained your back or you hurt yourself. That's the idea of this word, that we are praying for something that's beyond our ability to do. Isn't that a great way to go about prayer? That God, we're praying for things that are bigger than ourselves. That, that we can't do on our own, right? That, that's the way we're to pray. We want to let God be God in our lives. That's, that's what that means. That we don't pray for things that I can do and you can do. We don't pray for those things. I can accomplish that. But we're supposed to pray for things that are out of our control. Pray for things that only God can do. And that's the kind of prayer they were praying. Things that only God can do. And that's what God wants us to pray. Only things that God can do. Pray big prayers. God prayers. Not things that... God can accomplish on his own. But prayer, God, I'm, I'm praying that you would accomplish these wonderful, amazing things in our life. Verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood at the guard at the entrance. I don't know about you. Could you have slept that night? Here he is. He's, he's in a prison cell, probably on a 
some kind of cement slab, some, some kind of cement. And he's there, and he's chained between two guards, one on either side of him. And within hours, he's coming out for a trial, and he's going to be killed. Just within hours from this moment. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd be sleeping. I don't think, I think I'd be the, uh, awake and everything like that. Here's what I want you to know about Peter. Here's a guy who wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. He says, cast all your anxiety upon him, upon God, because he cares for you. And Peter here, we find he's doing what he wrote, right? And we might say he's practicing what he preaches. Isn't that wonderful to see about Peter, that he's doing this? He, he, he's saying this, and, and, and see, if you're going to claim Christ, if you're going to claim that Jesus loves you, and he cares for you, there ought to be that peace that comes into our lives when things come around, like we see here in Peter's life, right? We ought to have that peace. When Peter wrote those words in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, cast all your anxiety upon him, the word cast means to deposit, like you would something in a bank. You put it someplace safe and secure, like in a bank. And probably many of you in this room today have things going on in your life, and you have these, these doubts, these cares, these worries, these anxieties, these uncertainties. I mean, we're approaching the holidays. They say this is the most stressful time for families many times. The holidays, Christmas is coming up. COVID's been going on for about two years now. Now there's a new variant. They're saying it's coming out and stuff like that. And all kinds of things go on in our life. And what God is saying to you and I, deposit them with me. All those worries, all those anxieties, all those uncertainties, all those things that you have. And he's saying, let the peace of God rule in your life. They were to take those things that are bothering us, those things that are on our mind, and we to give them to God where they're safe and secure and they're with God. Deposit them with him is what he's saying. I'll take care of them so you don't have to. God says, give them to me and I'll take them so you can live and allow the peace of God to rule and reign in your life what he wants. The apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, he says, do not be anxious about anything or do not worry about anything. We like to talk about sins. We like to talk about the big sins of the Bible, but do you know the Bible says worry is a sin as well? Don't we worry? Let me finish reading Philippians 4, 6, and 7. The Apostle Paul says, Do not be anxious or do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. While those guards were those soldiers were guarding Peter. You know who was guarding his heart? It was the peace of God in his life. That was guarding his heart. That's what was going on. Everything else was going on around them. But here's Peter. He has peace. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And Peter lived that on his life hours before he's supposed to be killed. He thought he was going to die there. He thought, this is it. They're going to bring me out to trial. going to kill me. Seems like nothing's going to stop this. May God do that in our life as well. We have that peace during the most difficult times. But you can't have the peace of God in your life until you have peace with God, right? Let me say that again. You can't have the peace of God in your life until you have peace with God. And that peace comes through what Jesus Christ did for us upon the cross. That he died on the cross for our sins and he paid for the payments of our sins. And Jesus made peace between God and us to all mankind and provided forgiveness of sins through Jesus. When a person comes and puts their faith and trust in Jesus and comes to that relationship with Christ and has that uh, peace with God through Jesus Christ, then they, like Peter, can have the peace of God in their lives. But it has to start with the peace with God. And we only have that 
through faith in Jesus Christ. But understand that we're all sinners, and we are separated from God the Father, and there's nothing we can do to approach that, and that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and we come to him, and we accept him, we receive him by faith, and we trust him as our Savior. And when we do that, God forgives us our sin, we have a relationship with him, a hope in eternity is in Jesus, right? And now we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That's what Peter did. He was able to have the, the peace of God in his life because he had a peace with God. And hopefully you have peace with God through Jesus Christ so you can have the peace of God in your life too. So the night before Peter is about to be killed, he's sleeping in the prison cell. Verse 7. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off of Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. So the angel shows up at the cell and he struck Peter. The word there doesn't mean he shook him. It means he, he kind of punched him in the side. It's what it means to wake him up. It sounds like Peter might have been a sound sleeper. He said, you need to get up. Quick, get up right away. We got to go now, he was telling him. Verse 9, Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. This iron gate that he's talking about there usually takes several men to move this big, heavy gate. But it opens by itself. When they had walked through the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. So let's go to our outline. Hopefully you're in your outline. God can't be limited. The first way that God can't be limited, God's sovereignty cannot be limited. It's not limited. God's sovereignty is not limited. What a great story of God's sovereign hand in the work of Peter, in the life of Peter, and the life of the church that we see here. We talk about God's sovereignty. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, it means control. God is in complete control of everything that happens in the world. Believe it or not, he's in control of everything. He's in control of everything that happens in your life. God is in control of all those things. While Herod was trying to control the church and limit the church, and other forces were trying to control the people, God said, you can't limit me because I am sovereign. And I'm in control of all the things that are happening right now. And my plan is going to go forward whether you like it or not. You can't stop me. You can't limit me because I'm, I'm sovereign what he's saying. A couple of thoughts about God's sovereignty so we can understand it. First one, sometimes... God in his sovereignty does not answer our prayers until the last minute. We need to take note of that. The church had been praying that God would release, get Peter released from prison. I'm sure the church and Peter would have loved that God would have released him from the first day of imprisonment, but he didn't. It wasn't out till hours before the deadline, right to the last minute that God provided, right? In the same way in our lives many times. God doesn't always answer our prayers on our timeline, does he? God answers prayers on his timeline because that's what's important. And sometimes it's right down to the very last minute when God answers our prayers. And I'm sure some of you in this room today are, are praying for people or circumstance or something in your life, and you've been praying for a while, and maybe you're here today and say, where's the answer, God? Where is my answer for prayer right now? Where are, where are you answering? Can I encourage you? Don't stop praying. Don't stop pouring out your heart to God because God is a God who answers prayer. 
He is. And God likes it when you and I come and we pray to him. We're a frightened sinner of God and we're asking him, yield in our hearts, because that's what we do when we pray, right? We yield and we submit to him. We come to him and say, God, we throw up our hands. I need your help. This is out of my control. I need your help. And we're praying to him. God loves it when we're right there in front of him, praying. And we're the exact place we need to be. And don't give up praying because God is a God who answers prayer. We see that over and over and over in Scripture. We're going to see it in a moment here. The second thing from the story is, remember, sometimes God answers prayer not according to our desires. He answers prayer. Many times that happens. God is in control. His plan is the plan that's unveiling, not ours. God's going to do things the way he wants to do them, right? When I read this story, I don't know about you, but there's an obvious question that it comes to my mind. Peter has been delivered from, looks like, uh, death that was going to lead to death. But just a few verses before that, we look at James' life, and, and James was killed. So the question that comes to me is I ask, why did God rescue Peter and not James? You ever ask those kind of questions? God, why did you deliver Peter and not James? Why, why would you do that? And maybe you ask the same question. says, hey, why did that person get that new job and not me? Why did they get invited to that new group over there and they didn't invite me? Why did that person get married and I'm still single? Why are they able to have children and I can't? And we start asking the questions, why them and not me? Why them and not me? Why can I have this? I read the story, and it's an obvious question from a human viewpoint to say, why was James killed, and why was Peter delivered? Right? Did God not love James as much as he loved Peter? What, what, was, what was going on there? But let's, we need to look at this from a different point of view. We need to look at it for, from James' perspective. James has been killed now, and James has gone to heaven to be with Jesus. And the Bible tells us this, that to live for Christ is to die is gain, Right? So to live here on earth is to live for Jesus, but to die is so much better. And James is now in heaven. He's in heaven with Jesus. And James is asking in heaven the question, he says, God, why me? And how come Peter got left behind? You see, that's completely different, isn't it? That James is in heaven, and he says he's in the best place he can possibly be. And he's asking, God, why did you leave Peter down there? Why couldn't Peter come to heaven with me? Why isn't he here today? That's a sovereign God. God is in control of all of our lives. He does what he wants to do in our lives, right? And God is the one who's in control in your life. And we may ask the question why, and there's no, nothing wrong with asking, asking the question why, because sometimes God allows us to search our hearts to see where we are spiritually in our lives. But two things about asking the question why, when you ask the question why to God, the first one is this, God does not owe you and, you and me an answer. He doesn't. He doesn't owe us an answer of the whys that he does in this life. In fact, most of the time when I'm asking God, why, God, did you do this? Or, God, why did you do that? And why did this happen at this time? That I don't get an answer for a very long time, if ever, in this life, right? That I ever get an answer. And I think that part of heaven will be understanding the whys of this earth, of why God did this, and, and the reason he did that, and the reason he did this in my life, and why was he doing that? And I think that in heaven we're going to understand those things. Just think of Job in the Old Testament. That uh, how he went through extreme suffering in his life. And as we read the story in the book of Acts, we read the beginning of the story, we see the reason why it all happened. But Job didn't have that insight, did he? Job had endured each and every day what he was going through, all the loss that he went through. And one lesson we need to remember about this is you can ask God why, but he doesn't owe you an answer for the why, why he's doing it. He doesn't have to answer that. We're supposed to trust him. Secondly, and that goes right into my next, we have to let God be God in our lives. We have to trust him in our lives. 
God's ways are higher than our ways. His, his thoughts are greater than our thoughts. And he knows what's best for our lives. God is carrying out his plan for our lives. We're, we're to do his will. So we're not to tr know everything that's going on in our lives. We have to trust him. We have to completely trust him. Say, God, I know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. I don't understand it, but you know what you're doing. There's a t-shirt that I saw a long time ago that the front of it says, there's a God. And on the back of it, it says, you're not him. You're not him. And it's a great t-shirt. It's true, right? There's a God and you're not him. So we don't always understand with our finite minds an infinite God. There's no way that we can understand all the whys and all the reasons of what God's doing and his ways, right? There's no way we can grasp that. So we have to come to the point and say, God, you know, I, I just trust you. And I depend upon you. And you did it. I don't know why you did it. I don't know why you made that decision. I don't know why you're doing this. But I have to trust that you're doing it for the best for me and for your glory. That's what we're supposed to trust him. So why did Peter and not James, right? So why Peter and not James? After all that I shared the last five minutes, we get to this question. Let me give you the answer. I don't know. I don't know. Why Peter and not James? That's part of God's plan. It's as simple as that. That's how we have to trust. Get God be God. God, you know what you're doing. I don't. You know what's best? I don't. Acts chapter 12, verse 12. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. When Peter realized that he was free, he goes to the house of Mary, was the mother of John Mark. John Mark, this is the one who wrote the book of the Gospel of Mark. He wrote that. And most think that his mother was pretty wealthy because she owned this big home. She had servants. And some people believe this is where the Last Supper took place, was held 14 years earlier. It was in John Mark's mother's home. Verse 13. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Have you ever been so excited about something you forget the most important thing? That you maybe go on vacation and you forgot your suitcase. Or you go to take a, a meal to someone's home and you forgot the meal. That's what's happening here. She's forgetting the most important thing, what is going on. They've been praying for Peter to be released. Now, Peter's at the door. He's knocking. She leaves the door. And the church has been earnestly praying, the Bible's been telling us. They've all been earnestly praying there. God, you are the God of all creation. God, you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're the God that brought Moses through the Red Sea. You delivered him. You're the God that... Uh, Knock down the walls of Jericho. You're the God that delivered Daniel through the lion's den. Now, God, deliver our brother Peter. And they're all praying for this, earnestly praying for this. God, to do something bigger than they can do, God, do this. So she comes running in the room and says, Peter's at the door. Hey, guess what? Peter's at the door. And here's how they respond. You're out of your mind, they told her. In verse 15, did you ever say that? They say, God, you can't do this. You can't do this in my life. It's their lack of faith is what they see here. They've been praying for it. They've been asking God to deliver Peter, get him out of prison. And then when it actually happens, they don't believe it. They don't believe that God can do that, what he was going to do. And sometimes that's true in our life too, don't we? We don't believe what God has said. We don't believe that God can do that in our life, and we doubt him. And many times it comes down to we just don't believe him. We don't trust him. And throughout the Gospels, the followers of Christ several times expressed a lack of faith in what God said he was going to do. They didn't believe him. And here now, 14 years in the journey of the church, 14 years now, they still have a battle with that. They still doubt him and they don't believe him. And today, today we're here and we have a battle with that, don't we? 
God said something in Scripture. Oh, I don't know about that. I don't know. I don't believe that. We're praying and God is revealing something to us. Oh, I doubt him. I don't know if God could do that. I don't know if he wants to do that in my life. And what I love is sometimes that we're in this life, we fail, we fall, we sin, we slip up. And what I love about this story is when we're reading it, God doesn't remove them all and says, I'm tired of you guys. I get a whole new crew. God doesn't come to the point, you know, you guys constantly doubt me. You have such little faith, and you don't believe. You've seen me do so many things, so many miracles, so many wonders, and you still don't believe. You still doubt and get a whole new crew. That leads us to our second point. God can't be limited. God's patience toward his people is unlimited. God's patience toward his people is unlimited. God doesn't give up on us, and he doesn't give up on you, and that's great to understand that. Do you hear me? God never gives up on you. His great patience. His patience is unlimited with you. So we understand that. But don't take God's patience as a, as a reason to sin, as a as say, I can sin because God loves me and God has great patience with me so I can go out and do what I want because God is patient with me. Paul talks about, the apostle Paul says, don't mock God's grace is what he's talking about. We need to understand that we're all who know Jesus Christ as our Savior. We're on this journey in this relationship with Christ, on this walk with Jesus. And on this walk, there's going to be bumps in the road. There's going to be all kinds of things, valleys. There's going to be failures. There's going to be successes. There's going to be joys. There's going to be all kinds of things on this journey with Jesus. And God is there patient with us the whole way through. Can you imagine that? You know your own attitude. You know your own motives. And God is there when we get low, we're doubting him. We don't believe him. We don't trust him. We sin against him. I know you say this, God, but I'm going to do it my way. And God is there with us, patient, the whole way through. Can you imagine that? The patience of God. And I love what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, about God's patience toward him. He says this, But for that reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience, unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. The apostle Paul says, man, God has been patient with me because I mess up, and I mess up all the time. I mess up is what he's saying. God is patient. Aren't you glad and thankful for God's mercy and patience toward you? Aren't you glad that he's so patient with you? I'm so glad that God's not like me with patience. I wouldn't have a chance if he was. But God is so patient with us. And his mercy abounds toward us. It's unlimited. And that's so great to know for us to understand that. We even see it in Peter's life here in this, in this passage. That Peter's at the door, and he says it's him. And he's knocking at the door, and she leaves him there. Rhoda, here's, it's Peter. She leaves him, and, he, and, he, and we watch him. Look what it says. But Peter kept knocking on the door. We see that. Then. Now, this is Peter, a guy who took out a sword and cut off a soldier's ear, right? This is a guy who would talk before he would think. This is a guy where we see in his, in his life when he was around Jesus in the gospel. He had no patience. He had no patience at all. And we see that. And now he's just calmly he's knocking at the door, just standing there, knocking at the door is what you see. I think if it was me, I don't know about you, but if it was me, I'd be pounding, open the door. Open it. Let me in before they come back and get me. Open the door. But here we see Peter to his fellow believers that he just has a great spirit of patience that we see here. That we see that God has brought in his life now 14 years since Jesus has been raised from the dead. We see Peter's life has been changed from the inside out. It's not the Peter of the Gospels we see. That Peter, 14 years later, he's been changed. Here's a man with great patience. 
And one of the marks of the body of Christ, of a person controlled by the Spirit of God, is a person with patience. They have great patience with others. That God has extended his patience toward them, and now they extend it toward other people. And maybe people that, uh, that are not as far as long as you are in your journey with Jesus. Or, or maybe they should have grown more. We're supposed to have patience toward them. That's what the Bible tells us. Be patient toward all people. And one of the fruit of the Spirit that is mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, is patience. We have patience. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, let me read it to you. It says, therefore, as God's chosen people, as, as we are as believers in Jesus Christ, followers of Christ, holy and dearly loved, great verse, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. One of the marks of a spirit-filled Christian is patience. And I encourage you to develop that in your life. And, and I pray that at Crossroads, we would always all be patient with one another as we grow together. Because we're all growing together. And sometimes we all need patience, right, toward one another. We're not all in the same place. We need to be patient. Notice the difference at the end of this passage in Acts chapter 12, verse 18, after Peter escapes from prison. Notice the difference in verse 18 and 19. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod made a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. So those 16 soldiers were called in and they were questioned that regarding Peter, those 16 soldiers, and Herod then ordered that they be put to death because Peter escaped. We see the impatience of Herod. What a contrast that we see here in this passage right here with Herod. We see the patience of God toward us. We see the patience of Peter toward those people not open the door. They doubted he escaped. And now we see the impatience of Herod in this passage. And do you know anyone in your life that has the impatience of Herod? They say, I want it done, and I want it done now, and I want it done my way, right? Now, my way, right now, I want it. Watch it. Every one of us have that ability to be like Herod, be impatient with others. And God is saying, don't be that way. But yield your hearts and minds to the Holy Spirit, and he'll give you the patience that you need in each and every circumstance. That's what we need is patience with one another. Patience is what we need. I know it's hard to be patient, but that's what we're called is be patient. So God's patience is not limited, right? It's unlimited. It's not limited. And that's one of the reasons the church is unstoppable, because God is patient with us. And even if we mess up, even if we don't always do the right thing, God is patient. And that's why his church can't be stopped, because God is patient. And let's look at the end of the story, because it's a fascinating story, what happened here, what happens to Herod. Verse 19. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. And there it was kind of his headquarters along the coast. Verse 20, he had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They had not joined together and sought an audience with him. He was two, these were two towns on the coast. Verse 20, having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. So, we don't know what the disagreement was, but they, the two towns had a disagreement with Herod. He had embargoed food against them so they could not get any food to their towns. And so these people were trying to make peace with, Heather, uh, with Herod, trying to reestablish this trade agreement so they could have food for them, their families and for their people. And verse 21, On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. There is a Jewish historian named Josephus who writes about this very story, about a non-biblical account. 
And he says, And that day that Herod came up in his robe, his robe was made of complete silver. And when the sun shined on that robe, it just illuminated. I mean, it shined as bright as the sun. And when people looked at him, they thought he was a deity or at least an angel of what they could imagine an angel or deity would look like. And so he sits on his throne in front of his people, and he gives this speech. And here's how they respond. We have in verse 22. They shouted, and they said, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Verse 22. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. That brings us to our third point. God can't be limited. God's glory will not be limited. God's glory will not be limited. limited. God says he will not share his glory with anyone, right? No man, no woman, he will not share his glory with anyone. And it says here, Herod was eaten by worms. Most believe it was some sort of an intestinal parasite he was eaten by. Uh, Josephus says he died in five days after an agonizing period. He died from that. God's glory will not be compromised through the church or through you and I. And God desires that his glory would be illuminated. God desires that his glory would be radiated throughout the world, throughout our church, throughout our community, through you. Through you. Do you realize that? God says, I want my glory to shine as you and I yield to God and we serve him. We do the good deeds that God has called us to do, that we bring glory to him. As we go out with the gospel message and we share it wherever we go, we glorify God. God's glory shines throughout the world, throughout the earth, his glory. That's what he wants. But God is not willing for his glory to be shared with you and I. He says, I won't share it with you. I won't share my glory with you. He is God and we are not. So God says, I want my glory to go out. And I want people to recognize. And I want all the fame. I want, I want all the recognition. I want all the, all the credit for everything that's going on in your life as you and I go out. God gets all of it. All the fame, recognition, and everything. We don't get any of it. Anything that we do, we want to bring glory to God. Somebody said, boy, you did a great job. Praise God. Praise God. Give the glory to God. Because that's what we're called to do. We can't take credit for anything. God gets all the glory, all the credit, all the fame, all the recognition, everything. And everything that we do, he gets that. At your workplace, here at the church, whatever you do, God gets all the glory. He wants the glory for it. And maybe you say, well, no one would do what Herod did today. Do you realize it happens all the time in our world today? All the time it happens, what people are saying. Romans 1 talks about the people who rob God of his glory. That God has created everything on this earth. He created in his glory is on display. And people look at that and they deny him. They deny him as the creator. They deny his glory for what has been done and what he's created and what he's doing in the earth today. They don't yield to him. They don't submit to him. And they deny his glory right now. We see it happening. And Romans 1 said they suppress the truth of God that they suppress his truth. And what they're trying to do when it says that, they're trying to take his glory away from him. And they're trying to give credit to the things that he has done in his creation to something or someone else. That God didn't do that. And they're taking his glory away, what they're trying to do. When God does great things, oh, God didn't do that. And they try to give the credit and give recognition and give someone else the glory for what has been done by God and God alone. That he created this earth. He created everything in it. And it all belongs to him. But they don't want to believe that. They deny it. Every day that has happened in our world today, when it says suppress the truth of God, 
the word suppressed, there's, there's nothing I could come up with that would give us uh, illustration of that, but I came up with a couple. It's kind of not going to be as grandeur as who God is because nothing is. But if you ever you have a hose, a, a garden hose, and you hook it up to your faucet outside, and you turn it on full blast, and that water's coming out, and you try to put your hand over the end of the faucet, what happens? The water goes all over the place, right? It, it can't be contained. It can't be suppressed. That's the way the glory of God is. No matter how hard you try, you cannot suppress it. Or you take a two-liter soda bottle, soda bottle, and you shake it up real good. Shake it up. Have you ever done that? And you try to open it up. I don't care how slow you twist that cap up. It just goes everywhere. You can't contain it. You can't suppress it. That's the way God's glory is. You can't suppress it. It cannot be held back. No one can hold the glory of God back. And God's glory will not be suppressed. And you and I who know Jesus Christ is our Savior, we have the privilege and honor to spread his glory throughout the earth wherever we go by yielding and living our lives for him and seeing our changed life when someone looks at you and says, boy, I knew you when you were young and you certainly wasn't like this. God gets all the glory, right? He gets all the glory. That's what he wants. They, they see us doing things and accomplishing things and they say, man, how did they do that? I know they can't do that. God gets the glory. God gets the glory. It was sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. God gets the glory. That's what he wants. He gets the glory and he gives us an opportunity to spread his glory throughout the earth, through, through our family members, through, these, uh, through Christmas, through the holidays, wherever we go shopping, wherever we're spreading his glory, because his glory will not be suppressed. To, to, the government today can't suppress his glory. Herod couldn't suppress his glory. Your neighbor who's down the street or next door who doesn't believe in Jesus, doesn't believe in God, they can't suppress his glory. No one can suppress God's glory. It cannot be contained. It cannot be suppressed. So God, God is unstoppable. Because his glory is unlimited, right? He is unstoppable. Because of a God who is sovereign, he's unstoppable. Because of a God who is patient. Because of a God whose glory was spread throughout the earth, and it will not be limited. It will not be contained. No matter what anybody does, they can't contain God's glory. They cannot suppress it. And we are a part of the unstoppable church that's going to go forward. It's going to move forward. No one's going to be able to stop it. Do you realize that? It's been going on for 2,000 years. No one can stop God's church. It will not be stopped. Man might try to stop it. Others might try to stop it. The government might. They will not stop his church. And we're part of that in, in our lives. God says, may it be true that you are unstoppable people in our lives. We need to get out of God's way. So many times we try to limit what God is doing in our lives. And God said, why don't you just yield your life to me? Stop fighting me and let me have your, my way in your life. Because God wants to do amazing things in your life. And maybe you're here today, you don't believe that. He does. God didn't save you for you to put your faith and trust in Jesus, for you to do things on your own, for you to do things what you could do in your life. God saved you so you could do things that he wants you to do. And the things that God calls us to do, we can't do in human strength. We can only do it in the glory and the strength of God. Amen? So not that you guys aren't good people and wonderful people, but the only reason we can do it is not because who we are, it's because who he is. And God has called us to be unstoppable people because God is going to work in and through our lives to do, the, um, do things that people can't stop. Of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, doing good deeds to others, being nice and kind and patient and carrying out the work of Jesus so we might reach others for Jesus Christ. That's the goal, right? The purpose that God sends us out so we might reach people for Jesus Christ, that we might bring him glory in everything that we do. Amen? Remember this, God is unstoppable. So when you're out there and you're living for Jesus or spreading the gospel, God's 
God wants his glory to shine throughout the earth. So while you're doing it, God is there with you because he wants his glory to shine more than you do. He wants that person to come to Christ more than you do. He wants to change that person's life and influence them more than you do. So his glory is shining there already. And he's sending out his glory. And as you're there sharing, God's glory is shining. And he wants that person to come and change their life. He wants you to change your life. That's what he wants for us. God is unstoppable. His church is unstoppable. And we as his people are unstoppable when we yield to the power of the Holy Spirit. God wants to do amazing things in and through our lives. Do you believe that? Okay. Do you believe that? One more time. Do you believe that? God wants you to be unstoppable people. That's what he's called us to be, unstoppable people, because his church is unstoppable. Read the book of Acts. You see it's unstoppable because of God. Not because of the people, because the God of God, who he is, what he does. Amen? Let's pray. God, we come and we praise you. Uh, God, we read the scriptures and we see that, God, you're, you're a God who does the impossible. You're a God who does the amazing. That, Lord, every time we're amazed at the things that going on in our life, we see something else you do. And sometimes we take it for granted because we see so many amazing things that you do, how you what you've accomplished in our life and the prayers that you've answered. We just take it for granted. Well, we stop, Lord, and we look that you are an amazing God. And Lord, this story today in Acts chapter 12, that they were praying for Peter's release. And when it happened, Lord, they really didn't believe it. They didn't really believe it could happen. And God, but that's what you do. You do the impossible. And we pray, Lord, we should not be, be uh, just looking and thinking, boy, could this happen? We should believe that what we're praying, that God, you can do the impossible. You can do things that we should not limit what you're trying to do in our lives, in our circumstances, in other people's lives. And Lord, that we should take example from Acts chapter 12 as they were praying, earnestly praying, that Lord, we pray for things bigger than ourselves, that you would do the impossible, that we should not limit God who is sovereign, a God who has unlimited patience, a God who wants his glory to shine throughout the, the world, the universe, our church, our community, our families, our lives. That God, everything that we pray, we realize, God, you want to happen if it's going to glorify you. That you want, that you want to work through us and bring yourself glory. And Lord, we always remember, may every one of us remember the lesson here, that God will not share his glory with anyone. That we always point the glory back to God and give him the credit, the fame, the recognition that he deserves. Because everything that we accomplish, everything that we have is because of your goodness. Because you have prospered us. You've helped us. And so, Lord, we come to you. We lift up our hearts and minds today. And, Lord, we recognize the God of the universe who loves us and demonstrated his love through Jesus Christ. The Lord, we want to lift up your glory in the highest, in our hearts and our minds, and our praise to you and adore you and worship you and say thank you. Because you're a God who loves us loves us. And your love is unlimited. Your patience is unlimited. And Lord, it's just amazing when we read the scriptures, how we understand you. Because Lord, you're not anything like us. You're in another category. And we look at you, we look at ourselves, we try to, we try to put you in a category with us. We look at other people who are impatient, who has limitations. But Lord, you're nothing like that. It's your unlimited power. You're sovereign. You're in complete control. You're always in control of every situation. You know what's going to happen before it happens. That you're the one that makes it move. You're the one that shakes the earth and makes things happen. It's through you. And you love us. And your patience is unlimited in our lives. And your glory, your glory will shine and no one can stop it. No one can contain it. No one can suppress your glory. It's unlimited. 
And Lord, may we always be reminded of that, that God's glory is going to shine with or without me. If I don't yield my life, God will use other people and his glory will shine through them. So let's yield to you so your glory might shine through us. Today, Lord, we give you the glory. But Lord, that you might use us as your vessels to accomplish your will in our lives and other people's lives. That we, that we just yield our hearts and minds to you. We surrender to you. Lord, we love you and praise you. And Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.